Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. On this episode, we're going to talk transfusions. For me and my training, we learned a lot about all the things that could cause anemia, but once the patient actually got to the point of needing some extra blood, it always seemed like we put in the order and it just happened. It is pretty straightforward in most cases, but knowing why you're doing something is at least as important as knowing what to do, so we'll spend some time on it here. We're going to skip all the workup for anemia and why your patient might need a transfusion and get right to deciding whether or not to give one. Unfortunately, there's not really a one-size-fits-all answer, which is why we have a whole episode about this. The whole point of giving a transfusion is to make sure your patient has enough blood to deliver oxygen to all the places it needs to go, so it's important to keep the clinical situation in mind. Acuity matters too. If your patient's hemoglobin drops 8 grams over 3 months, she'll be pale and fatigued and almost definitely needs a transfusion, but because the gradual drop gave her body more time to compensate, she should have a reasonable blood pressure and not be nearly as symptomatic as you'd expect. On the other end of the spectrum, if the hemoglobin drops 8 grams in 3 hours, that patient is immediately going to the ICU or the operating room. In terms of transfusion targets and thresholds, there isn't much literature for children so most of the guidelines are extrapolated from adult studies and then modified over the years based on clinical experience. Transfusions for children under one month old are the trickiest, and the guidelines are broadly divided into acute blood loss and chronic blood loss. For acute blood loss, the baby that has a low hemoglobin shortly after birth, it's important to make sure it's truly an acute blood loss. We always joke about how it's easy to get the medical history for a newborn because you just have to ask mom what happened in the last few hours, but really everything that happened in the last 40 weeks has the potential to influence what that baby is like after it's born. If you think the blood loss may have been going on for a while, whether it's twin-to-twin transfusion, a maternal fetal bleed, or anything else that might cause anemia in utero, you should consider a partial exchange transfusion. Like anyone else with chronic anemia, these babies have compensated by increasing their plasma volume to maintain a perfusion pressure. So while their hemoglobin is low, their total circulating volume is close to normal. Unlike other people with chronic anemia, these babies aren't as able to handle the extra volume from a simple transfusion, and it can tip them into heart failure. If you know you're dealing with an acute blood loss, the first step is volume resuscitation with IV fluids. After that, you might be done, even if there's been a pretty significant bleed. While they're growing in utero, babies are in a low oxygen environment, and their bodies respond by producing more red blood cells. The normal hemoglobin and hematocrit for a term newborn are 19 and 61, compared to somewhere around 13 and 40 in older children and adults. Because being born moves them into a high oxygen environment, they start working on the right-hand side of the hemoglobin bonding curve you remember from physiology class. That means they don't need nearly as many total red blood cells to carry the same amount of oxygen, so babies can still do pretty well even if they lose a fairly large amount of blood. Because of all this variability, the transfusion guidelines for acute blood loss in infants under one month are based more on the clinical scenario than on a concrete transfusion threshold. If the estimated blood loss is greater than 20%, a transfusion is generally indicated. You should also think about transfusing if the blood loss is between 10 and 20%, but the baby still has signs of decreased oxygen delivery, like acidosis or tachycardia. For less than 10%, monitoring and maybe some IV fluids will probably be enough. Chronic blood loss is usually more of an issue in premature infants, so there's more data behind these recommendations. 
Several studies have shown that a restrictive transfusion threshold, usually a hematocrit somewhere between 20 and 30% based on the level of support the patient needs, decreases the risk of transfusion-associated complications without increasing morbidity or mortality. The exact transfusion thresholds and the level of support that they go along with are beyond what you need to know for general pediatrics review, but just keep in mind that patients who are needing more support, like on a mechanical ventilator, should get transfusions at a higher hematocrit than the ones who are getting minimal interventions. For patients who are asymptomatic without any respiratory needs, the recommendation for chronic blood loss is to transfuse if the hematocrit is under 18% with less than 2% reticulocytes. Provided your patient isn't premature, things get much simpler after that first month. Between 1 and 4 months old, there are three criteria to meet for needing a transfusion. One, a hematocrit less than 20%. 2. Symptomatic anemia, and 3. A low reticulocyte count. The reason that reticulocyte count is included as a factor in transfusion decisions for young infants is that it can be completely normal for the hematocrit to dip pretty low before the erythropoietin red blood cell production system gets fully up and running. Giving a transfusion can suppress the feedback loop that triggers blood production from bone marrow and can actually lead to more problems with anemia going forward. For children and infants over 4 months old, the transfusion thresholds are similar to adults. A hemoglobin under 7 grams per deciliter is generally an indication for a transfusion, and you probably don't need to do anything if it's over 10. Between 7 and 10 depends on the clinical situation, what symptoms the patient is having, whether it's an acute or chronic process, any underlying conditions, and whether or not there are any plans for surgery in the near future. Now that we've decided to give our patient a transfusion, we have to decide what to give. The answer is almost always packed red blood cells. There are very few indications to give a whole blood transfusion. Even then, it's usually done by mixing packed cells with fresh frozen plasma. For kids, you decide how much blood to give based on weight rather than ordering a certain number of units. One unit of packed red blood cells is around 300 milliliters, and you wouldn't think twice about giving two units of blood to an otherwise healthy adult who came in needing a transfusion. By contrast, a 15-pound baby has an estimated total blood volume of just under 600 milliliters. When you consider that packed red blood cells have most of the plasma taken out, there might be more red cells in those two units of blood than there are in that baby's entire body. That's why we do weight-based transfusions. For an infant under 1 month, it's usually 15 to 20 cc's per kilogram, and for everyone else, it's 10 to 15. Even after you've decided how much blood to give, there are a few different options for how the blood gets prepared prior to a transfusion, and you need to know which to use for your patient. Leuco-reduced blood is passed through a filter that removes about 99.9% .9 of donor white blood cells. Having fewer white blood cells in the transfused blood decreases the risk of febrile, non-hemolytic transfusion reactions which are triggered by the donor leukocytes, and also reduces the transmission of infections that can sit dormant in white blood cells, particularly CMV. The cells that do make it through the filter are still viable, but are generally recognized and destroyed by the recipient's immune system. You should use leukocyte-reduced blood for patients who have had a febrile transfusion reaction in the past, patients who might need frequent transfusions, or for the ones who are at risk of having complications from a CMV infection. If you're really worried about CMV, the risk can be almost eliminated by using blood from CMV seronegative donors. Cytomegalovirus is really common in the population, so CMV-negative blood can be hard to find, and leukoreduced blood is probably good enough risk reduction for most patients. 
The CMV negative blood is mostly reserved for premature infants, patients with immune deficiencies, certain organ transplant recipients, and fetuses getting intrauterine transfusions. The last major way that blood can be prepped prior to transfusion is with irradiation. Treating cells with radiation knocks out the lymphocytes in the donor blood and takes the risk of transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease close to zero. The dose of radiation isn't enough to kill any viruses that might be present, so don't confuse irradiated blood for CMV-safe blood. Talking about which patients need irradiated blood segues well into the potential complications of transfusions, starting with transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease. Graft-versus-host happens when viable white blood cells from a donor recognize the recipient's tissue as foreign and start replicating and attacking. It's most common in patients who have gotten a bone marrow transplant, but it's possible after a transfusion under certain circumstances. I mentioned earlier that as a general rule, the recipient's immune system wipes out any leukocytes that come through in transfused blood, and that's true. Graft-versus-host becomes a problem when that doesn't happen and the donor white blood cells survive long enough to start recognizing and attacking the recipient's tissues. Transfusion-associated graft-versus-host is particularly bad because the donor cells go after the host's bone marrow along with the rest of their tissues, which leads to potentially fatal marrow aplasia. The disease is not nearly as responsive to treatment as classic graft-versus-host, and the mortality is as high as 80-90%. to 90%. How do you prevent this terrible thing from happening? by giving irradiated blood to the people at the highest risk. You probably guessed that immunosuppressed patients are less likely to be able to clear the donor lymphocytes, but the other group to watch out for is transfusions from family members. Don't worry about the details of the immunology, but it's possible to have a partial HLA match with a family member that keeps the recipient's body from recognizing the donor leukocytes as foreign, while the donor cells still attack the recipient. Long story short, give irradiated blood to immunodeficient patients and people getting blood from family members. The next major class of transfusion complications is hemolytic reactions. Acute hemolytic reactions are the most severe and are usually the result of accidentally getting ABO-incompatible cells, although some other antigens can be responsible too. Within minutes after starting the transfusion, the patient will have back pain, chills, fevers, low blood pressure, and dark urine as the new blood gets broken down by the immune system. It's generally easier to prevent acute hemolytic reactions than to treat them, but if it does happen, you should immediately stop the transfusion and provide supportive care and symptom management until it passes. Delayed hemolytic reactions happen when the body starts producing antibodies days after the transfusion as the immune system starts recognizing foreign antigens. These reactions are usually clinically silent. The most you might see is some yellowing of the sclera or mild jaundice because the hemolysis isn't happening fast enough to cause too much trouble. You should monitor the hemoglobin until it's clear the hemolysis has stopped, but these patients typically aren't going to need a repeat transfusion. The most common transfusion complication is a febrile non-hemolytic reaction. These happen in anywhere from 0.1 to 1% of transfusions, but are more common in kids than in adults. Cytokines released from donor leukocytes cause the recipient to develop a fever. It's as simple as that, and that's why leukocyte-reduced blood lowers the risk of this kind of reaction. You should draw labs to rule out infection and hemolysis, but this is another one where the main treatment is stopping the transfusion and providing supportive care. The last two complications to mention come up less often in pediatrics than in adults, but are worth mentioning because they can be pretty severe. Transfusion-related acute lung injury, or trolley, is an immune reaction that causes shortness of breath, hypoxemia, bilateral pulmonary edema, hypotension, and a fever within six hours of a transfusion. 
we aren't entirely sure what causes a trolley. It's thought to be a combination between predisposing factors in the recipient and an immune response to the donor cells, but patients often need a pretty high level of support to make it through. If this starts happening, you should stop the transfusion immediately, and by now you're probably picking up on a theme for what to do with acute transfusion reactions, and give supplemental oxygen to correct the hypoxemia. The vast majority of these patients are going to need some kind of ventilatory support with CPAP, BiPAP, or even intubation while they recover from the reaction. We'll wrap up with tacos. This isn't the fun kind of taco. It stands for Transfusion Associated Circulatory Overload. Taco also develops within six hours of a transfusion with difficulty breathing and orthopnea as prominent symptoms. But these patients are more likely to have hypertension, which helps distinguish it from the low blood pressures you see in a trolley. Patients at higher risk are the ones who have an underlying condition like heart, lung, or kidney disease that makes them more sensitive to excess volume. They usually respond well to diuretics, and if you think your patient might be at a higher risk, you can give a dose of a diuretic along with the blood to reduce chances of it happening. And that's our run-through on transfusions. For take-home points, remember that for kids over 4 months, the transfusion thresholds are about the same as for adults, and for anyone younger, it's a good idea to check the age-specific guidelines. Over one month old, the transfusion volume is 10 to 15 cc's per kilogram, and you should choose the type of red blood cell prep, leukocyte reduced, CMV negative, or irradiated, based on your patient's needs and risk factors. If you're worried about an acute transfusion reaction, you're almost always right to immediately stop the transfusion and give supportive cares. Hopefully this episode helped fill in some gaps around transfusions. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm always open to comments and suggestions for episodes. Just email pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.